This is the last talk um, in the Exodus series, and we're going to finish off this series with one of my favorite topics, um, and that is discovering Jesus in the Old Testament, especially discovering Jesus in Exodus. I believe that no Old Testament series is complete um, without talking about how it relates to Jesus. Ever since I started reading the Bible with other people, one of the most common struggles people have of the Bible is that they don't know what to do with the Old Testament. I wonder, like, how many of you sitting here and how many people on the live stream have tried studying um, to read the Bible and, you know, have made New Year resolutions in the past to read through the Bible at least once? Have you tried doing that? How many of you made it to the end? How far did you make, um, how, how far did you go before you stopped? Did you make it past the wilderness into the promised land? Tell us on the chat. For many Christians, when they think about the Old Testament, there's a mixture of guilt, frustration, and confusion. Guilt, because we believe that it is the word of God, but we often avoid it or neglect it. Frustrated and confused because there's so many names, people, places, details, and we get lost along the way. Even when we do read it, we often, we're not, like, we're not sure of what the significance of it is and how to apply those passages into our lives. But brothers and sisters, reading the Old Testament doesn't have to be so difficult. It doesn't have to be this way. Reading through Old Testament can actually be a very exciting journey. And I think Steve has done a great job in showing us um, how exciting it is to be able to go through Exodus. But there, there's one thing that's, that makes reading the Old Testament extremely exciting, and that is the people and events of the Old Testament prepare us for the greatest event in the history of mankind, the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the most important ways to understand and interpret the Old Testament is to know that the Old Testament is ultimately about Jesus. I love reading the Old Testament because it teaches me about Jesus. It helps me to appreciate Jesus more. It helps me to love Jesus more. And it is Jesus himself who teaches us to read the Old Testament this way. In John chapter 5, verse 39, when talking with the Jewish people who refused to believe in him, Jesus said, you study the scriptures diligently, and the scriptures here mean the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Again, in verse 46, in John chapter 5, Jesus said, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? In Luke chapter 24, after Jesus resurrected from the dead, um, when he explained the Old Testament to, to his disciples, this is what he said. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. 
the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms um, is the way that Jewish people, I guess, um, when, when they want to refer to the whole of the Old Testament, um, this is how they put it, the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. So you see, Jesus is saying here that the whole Old Testament um, is, you know, pointing to him. An example that I could think of is this picture. So what's, helping, what's happening in that picture? A child um, is given a doll to play with. Um, so this is to help, so maybe this is to help the child prepare for the arrival of a baby sibling. Sometimes parents might, might do that. Um, well, I don't know if you guys did it, but apparently I searched online, okay? And sometimes parents do some role play um, with, their, with their older sibling um, so that they can help prepare for the arrival um, of their baby sibling. Um, what they do might be like, they might designate like a nap time for the doll. Um, so the doll would, would have a nap between like, you know, 10 to 12. And the toddler um, or, your, or your other child will have to learn, you know, to do activities quietly when the doll is sleeping. <laughs> or like you may use the doll to teach um, the child how to hold the baby or um, what needs to happen, like changing nappies or feeding them. Um, and how to be um, an older sibling, like a big brother or a big sister. So the doll prepares for the arrival of the actual baby. Another helpful example would be display models of a future building. When buying an apartment off the plan, the buyers are invited to go view a display model of what the apartment in the future would look like. It is not the real thing, but there is enough detail um, in the model to give us a good idea of what the future building would actually look like. Its function is to point to the future building. So the Old Testament is the doll. The Old Testament is the miniature display. Jesus is the baby. Jesus is the final building. So how does Exodus prepare us for Jesus? Tonight, I want to focus on three main ways that Exodus points to Jesus, through Moses, through the tabernacle, and through the pattern of salvation that we find in Exodus. Firstly, Moses. Moses was a preview of what the future Savior would be like. Moses was a type of Christ. In simple terms, Moses is the doll and Jesus is the baby. When we compare the life of Moses and the life of Jesus, we'll be able to see a lot of similarities. They were both protected by God from evil kings that tried to kill them when they were babies. They both lived in Egypt as a child. They were both sent by God to be the savior. They both performed great signs and miracles. They both fasted 40 days in the desert. They both had an intimate relationship with God. In Exodus chapter 33, um, this is how God speaks of Moses. The Lord will speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And in John chapter 1, in verse 18, this is how John describes Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. They were both very intimate um, with God. They also both prayed on behalf of sinful people and turned God's anger away. 
Um, in Exodus, we think of um, the golden calf incident. And for Jesus, it's pretty much his whole life. But, you know, the most memorable one would probably be when he was on the cross. Um, and then he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. There's similarities, um, like it doesn't end here. But we don't have time to go into like every little detail. These parallels between the life of Moses and the life of Jesus are not mere coincidences. These parallels are there so that we would be able to recognize that Jesus is the one that Moses was pointing to. Before Moses died, he prophesied about the fact that God will raise up another prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. But how would the Israelites recognize this prophet that they must listen to? Well, he was going to be like Moses in many ways. He was to be a prophet like me. So we have to ask the question, were there other prophets like Moses in the rest of the Old Testament? And the answer is no. Moses had a very special and distinctive role in the Old Testament. He was the savior, the covenant establisher, and the lawgiver. Before Moses, people didn't know what God was like and didn't know how to have a relationship with God or how to worship him until God revealed his will to the people through his servant Moses. But every prophet that came after Moses, they were not like Moses because their role was different. Although the other prophets also heard from God, they didn't establish another covenant between God and people. They didn't give people new laws. Rather, they called the Israelites to obey the laws that God had given through Moses. They didn't institute new ways to worship God. They simply called the people back to worshiping God the way Moses prescribed. The prophets did prophesy about a future when a new covenant with God would be established, a new exodus a new Exodus-like event would happen, but they only spoke about it. They were not the ones to establish it. So in short, there was no other prophet like Moses until Jesus came. Jesus, like Moses, is the savior, the covenant establisher, and the lawgiver. But Jesus isn't just a prophet like Moses. Jesus is far more glorious than Moses. Moses saved the Israelites out of physical slavery, but Jesus came and saved not just the Israelites, but the whole world, not just from physical slavery, but from a more difficult slavery, the slavery to sin. Moses instructed the Israelites to paint the blood of the lamb on the door frames so that the judgment of God would pass over the Israelites and save their firstborn son in the last plague. But Jesus, he himself is that Passover lamb that was sacrificed so that all who trust in him would pass over from God's judgment and be given eternal life. With the help of Moses, the Israelites officially became God's nation after they entered into the covenant with God at Mount Sinai. But when Jesus came, he instituted a new covenant through his death and resurrection and opened the way for people from every nation, tribe, and language to become the children of God. Moses was just the display model. Jesus is the real building.
Moses pointed to Jesus. Secondly, the tabernacle also pointed to Jesus. The tabernacle, um, Steve had touched on this in part nine of the series. So if you um, haven't listened to that talk, I would recommend that you do. It's a really good talk. Um, the tabernacle was the special tent where God dwelt and the place where people could go to worship the Lord, to offer their gifts and sacrifices. But it wasn't just one of the many places that people could go to meet with the Lord. It was the only place, the only place that people could go to meet with the Lord until the tabernacle was superseded by the temple about 450 years later. Through the building of the tabernacle, God was teaching the Israelites that people were not allowed to worship God in whatever way they wanted. When they approached the Lord, it must be based on God's terms and conditions and not on people's preferences. The tabernacle had to be built according to the Lord's instructions and the worship that went on inside the tabernacle must also be done exactly the way God prescribed it. This point was so important that before Moses died, he reminded the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 13. This is why he said, Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, and there observe everything I command you. So you see, back in Exodus, the only place where the Israelites would go to have access to the Lord was to go to the tabernacle. It was where the presence of God was and where worship was carried out. After Jesus came, where people go to have access to God is no longer at a special place, but through a special person, Jesus himself. In John 14, Jesus said, I am the way the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. There are many people in the world today who want to worship God in their own way. Some people try to seek God through meditation by entering into an altered state of consciousness. I have an auntie. Um, who is like that. She told me once that she met this loving presence during her meditation, and she believed that it was God who was speaking to her. She was willing to believe whatever this presence told her. There are others who think that they can be closer to God if they worship at a certain place or follow certain rituals. And in the Catholic Church, people think that they can have better access to God through Virgin Mary Brothers and sisters, that's not the way. God has already ordained the way to approach him. It is through trusting in his son, Jesus Christ. It is no longer a matter of where we go, but who we go to. Jesus is the one that the tabernacle pointed to. Another significant thing to take note in, um, to, to take note of in the design of the tabernacle is the large curtain or veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The only item inside the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant, representing God's throne. That place was off limits to all the Israelites, um, 
And the curtain was a daily reminder to everyone that as much as God loved the Israelites and desired to dwell with them, a separation between God and people was needed because sinful people could not be in the direct presence of God and live. Only the high priest of Israel was allowed to enter it once per year to stand before the presence of God and to make atonement for the sins on behalf of all the people. Though God was with them, the Israelites worshipped the Lord from a distance. What about us? Is there still a curtain that separates us from the holy God? No. We are more blessed than the Israelites. Today, we can enter into God's throne room and directly pray to Him without the curtain blocking our access. Why? Because when Jesus died on the cross... Matthew chapter 27, verse 51 tells us, at that very moment, the curtain blocking the most holy place was torn into two from top to bottom. Jesus' body was torn so that the curtain that separated God and man could also be torn. God was using the curtain to teach us about the work of Jesus and the significance of Jesus' death. The curtain pointed to Jesus. Now, before I leave the topic of the tabernacle, I want to show you pictures. Um, I want to show you a picture um, of the items inside the Ark of the Covenant. Um, do you know what's inside the Ark of the Covenant? It's um, the Ten Commandments, um, and then it's um, Aaron's budded staff um, and manna that the Israelites ate in the wilderness. These three things also point to Jesus. But I'm going to get you to do your own research and find out how these things point to Jesus. It's actually really amazing. The last point I want to make about Exodus and Jesus is that Exodus reveals to us God's pattern of salvation. It creates an expectation of what the new Exodus would look like when the ultimate Savior comes. Exodus was the display model. The new Exodus through Jesus is the building. So what pattern was established in Exodus? From Exodus, we learned that salvation is by grace, through faith, and not by works, so that no one can boast. Salvation is by grace, through trusting in the Lord, not based on human effort, so that no one can boast. Israel's salvation was a gift from God. They didn't do anything to earn it. They didn't contribute to any of it. The reason why God came to their rescue wasn't because they were somewhat better than all the other nations or that they loved God more. In fact, all throughout Exodus, we keep seeing the Israelites complain, grumble, refusing to put their full trust in the Lord. Israel certainly didn't deserve to be saved because they were good. God saved them because he wanted to keep his promises to their ancestors and because God had mercy on them. Not only were the Israelites saved by grace, they were saved by trusting in the Lord and not by their own works. If the Israelites were interviewed on TV after the Exodus event and the reporter asked them, wow, how did you do it? 
How did you overcome such a powerful enemy to be a free people? What would you expect them to answer? Would they give credit to themselves and say, "Yeah, we did a really good job"? Of course not. They would have said, "Don't look at us. It wasn't us. It was God." The Israelites didn't secure their freedom through revolts or military campaigns. God was the one that fought for them. God did everything. God was the one that initiated the Exodus. He was the one that saved Moses, commissioned Moses, and sent Moses. God was the one that performed all the wonders and all the miracles and signs in view of the Egyptians and the Israelites. God did everything. The Israelites did not even lift a finger in this fight against the Egyptian oppressors. All they could do was to look up to God and be amazed at what God was doing. Exodus teaches us that Israel was saved by grace through faith. And not by their own works, so that no one can boast. There is an unfortunate misunderstanding among the Christians that the Israelites were saved by doing good works and by following the law. But brothers and sisters, the law was only given to the Israelites after they were saved. Observing the law and obedience to God was the response to God's salvation, not the reason for it. And if that was the pattern that Exodus established, then we should be able to find the exact same pattern at work in the new Exodus that Jesus brings. And that's exactly what we see. <laughs> Just like the Israelites, if TV reporters came into our church today and asked you, "Wow, Min Sangwu, you know, how did you do it?" How did you free yourself from being a slave to sin? How did you overcome death? Andy, tell us how did you do it? How would you answer that question? We would simply point up and say, "It is not us; it's Jesus. Jesus is the one you should honor. He did everything." Then the reporter would probably ask you another question. Oh, so Jesus was the one that saved you? Then it must be because you love him a lot, or that you have a lot of faith. That's why he did it. You must have deserved it somehow. You must have earned it somehow. To which we will say, "No, Jesus died for me when I was still God's enemy. I didn't do anything to deserve his death. It was all because of God's great love and mercy." Really? Come on. Surely you have done something right, isn't there? A saying that tells us God helps those who help themselves. You must be able to take some credit for your salvation. Could we? To that, we will humbly answer: No, we cannot take any credit. We haven't done anything to deserve God's help. To God be all honor and glory. Dear brothers and sisters, can you see how consistent God actually is? The Old Testament wasn't given to us to confuse us, even though sometimes we think that. To the contrary, it's given to us to provide clarity and confirmation. This is why Jesus could say to the Jewish people that opposed him, "If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me." 
Exodus cries out to us, Jesus is the one. Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the true tabernacle. Jesus is the one that brings about the new Exodus. Trust in Jesus. Dear friends, are you still looking for a saviour? Are you still wondering whether God will send another king, another prophet, another priest? Don't be deceived and don't be tempted to look away from Jesus. Only one person in heaven and on earth fulfill all the expectations of the Old Testament. Jesus is that one. It is not Muhammad. It is not Mary. It is not the Pope. It is not Donald Trump. Jesus is the one. The main character of the Bible is Jesus. The Old Testament points to him. The New Testament reveals and explains him. There will be others who will come and try to, try to persuade us that they are the saviour of the world. And they may be impressive. They may even perform signs and miracles. But don't be deceived by them. We're actually going to look at that in Revelation later on. If ever we are in doubt, read the Old Testament and it will direct us back to Jesus. So before I finish, I want to give you a couple of encouragements. One, learning about how the Old Testament points to Jesus should give us more faith in God's power and wisdom and more confidence in the Bible as the Word of God. Although the Bible is made up of 66 books written by around 40 different authors across a period of at least 1,500 years, all the books somehow come together to present a unified story where Jesus is at the center. How amazing is that? The internal consistency of the Bible shows us that the Bible really is the Word of God and not just the works of men. Number two. When we read the Old Testament, we need to learn to read it with a Jesus lens. Of course, we still want to understand and we need to understand um, the passage in its original context and how it applied to the original audience. And yes, not every little detail in the Old Testament have a direct correlation to Jesus, but we must learn to read the Old Testament passages with a Jesus lens because when God inspired the writing of the Old Testament, Guess who was on his mind? Jesus. Practically, this means that when we read and apply the Old Testament, we should get into a habit of asking, how does Jesus relate to this passage? Has Jesus fulfilled the promises in this passage? Is it prophesying about an aspect of Jesus' life and ministry? Is it providing a comparison or a contrast to Jesus? Does it help me appreciate an aspect of Jesus' ministry more? Has the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus changed the application of this Old Testament passage for us? These are very important questions to ask. And if you, and if you want to understand this topic more, or would like more help in reading the Old Testament, the first thing is to get your hands on a copy um, of a good study Bible. If you would like to get one, you could start with the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible. OK. 
okay, no one is taking out their phone. No one's writing that down. NIV, Biblical Theology, Study Bible, edited by Don Carson. It is now on sale in Kurong for $64, okay? And I'm not getting any, you know. Yeah. Um, I would also like to recommend two books for you. One book is called God's Big Picture by Von Roberts. And the other one is a Bible study book that I absolutely love. This Bible study is called Full of Promise. Both of these resources show us how the books of the Bible fit together as one unified story. I love Full of Promise so much. I've done it like 10 times at least. Um, and it's still my go-to Bible study that I go through with people. I'm actually going through it now um, with two people in my life group. I hope you will give it a try. I'm sure it would open your eyes to the Bible as it did for me. Okay, we've now officially come to the end of our journey through Exodus. Exodus started with a reluctant savior, a defiant king, and a big question on everyone's mind was, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And this wasn't just a question for the Pharaoh or the Egyptians and the Israelites, but it is a question for you and me. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? In response to this question, God revealed his glorious name, that he is Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. He revealed his glory to us through mighty acts of salvation and judgment as well as his tender step-by-step -step provision and care for the needs of the Israelites. He revealed his character and desires through the covenant with Israel and the giving of the law and the building of the tabernacle. He also graciously proclaimed his character to us. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And lastly, Exodus revealed the glory of God because it paves the way for Jesus Christ, the ultimate Savior. Dear brothers and sisters, the recurring phrase in Exodus is this, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. When God did everything that he did in Exodus, it is so that you will know that he is the Lord and there is no one like him. Do you know the Lord? When we stand before God on that final day, the one thing we cannot say to God, the one excuse that we cannot use is, God, how am I meant to know that you're the one I'm meant to follow? How would I know that you're the one I'm meant to love and obey? We can't use that excuse because God has done more than enough to show us who he is. Now the ball is in your court. The final question of this series is a question addressed to you. Who is the Lord to you? Who will you love and obey?
Who is the Lord to you? Let's pray.